This is Creative Machines. Conversations about technology, creativity, and all the different futures we could be heading towards. I'm Aaron Tolson with Pietro Galliano, and we are Creative Machines. Technology can be a reflective tool. Last year, the Art Gallery of Ontario had an exhibition that featured an augmented reality video of the last male northern white rhino in existence. In the middle of the gallery, I watched through an iPad the lonely grazing of a creature that was already functionally extinct. Nature by itself simply can't make any more white rhinos. But what if there was a way to bring back some extinct creatures, like woolly mammoths or the Tasmanian tiger? Our guest today, as it turns out, has written the book on this idea, known as De-Extinction. Britt Ray is a storyteller, a science communicator who, like anyone who's had one of those charisma vacuum teachers or lecturers make them just copy notes from the whiteboard, she felt there must be a better way to get everyone, scientists and the public alike, talking about all the amazing discoveries being made in labs across the academic world. Britt has won numerous awards and plaudits for putting human voices and emotions into the cold, loveless world of data and progress, helping the scientists involved in cutting-edge research tell their stories. Britt recently completed a PhD at the University of Copenhagen in science communication, with a focus on the very future-facing field of synthetic biology. More on that later. She's the host of the BBC podcast Tomorrow's World. Britt's also hosted CBC's beloved Quirks and Quarks radio show, and has just finished a residency at TED. She's also given a TED talk or two. Britt wrote a book during her PhD, which any listening PhD student would believe is likely to happen as building a theme park full of dinosaurs. It's called Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics and Risks of De-Extinction. And just to get it out of the way in case anyone's hoping to hear otherwise, Jurassic Park, it ain't gonna happen. We discuss how researchers are going about trying to de-extinct species, including new technologies you may have heard of, like CRISPR, and we'll learn if it's even possible to fully resurrect extinct animals, plus what it says about humans that we even want to bring them back. We ask about Brit's own career path and lament the academic choices young people are forced to make. We discuss the importance of collaboration and knowledge sharing between artists and scientists, philosophers and historians, and how this might be the key to solving the moral questions raised by all kinds of technological progress. We also discuss a shared hero, beloved to so many, Sir David Attenborough. As usual, I'll be doing my best Sir David impression with a few extra footnotes throughout the conversation. Let's hear Brit Ray on the Creative Machines podcast. I used to go on these really long car rides with my dad and he would, I mean, at the time I thought that he knew everything and I now know that he was riffing on a lot of <laughs> right. basically science fiction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I do these, there are so many of these conversations that stand out in my mind that they would invigorate me and inspire me. Mm-hmm. And I think got me on this, this path of looking at science through an interdisciplinary lens of what happens when you combine 
art and science and literature mm-hmm. and kind of like critical theory to try and understand what some of these technological and scientific shifts are that are happening in culture. I remember there was this really long ride we went on where we were talking about how humans will be farmed for their organs. Oh my um, God. How old you know, were these, you? Like, when, I think when I was talking eight about this stuff. or something. Eight, yeah, and he was he was telling me about these headless humans that would be farmed and right. and uh, you know they wouldn't be conscious but they'd have all the the right organs that we'd be able to take for our needs and hmm. uh, those things horrified and excited me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Strangely, I mean, yeah, I guess he wanted to get a rise out of me, but he was being pretty earnest. You know, he he's he's this kind of transhumanist thinker, but in a total pop science, not very erudite way, not coming from any kind of experience with the research up close, but more just gleaning what's happening in technological shifts. And and so then he would talk to me about, you know, putting chips in our brains, brain machine interfaces, things that I ended up reporting on, you know, later in my right. life as like a technology reporter and oh podcaster God. and yeah. things like this. And that became probably um, a dance between you and your dad that you would probably bait him in certain ways and then he'd like respond. As you get older, I can see that being a, a, a like, okay, we're going to get into an interesting conversation type of uh, setup. Yeah, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we so need to have he's him kind of my version next. of Jurassic Park. Yeah, go for it. Joe Ray. Okay, I'm sure awesome. he'll be keen. He's coming on. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, like, just from your dad, but has your experiences in the science world, because you started out with a, a degree in the conservation or biology or Right. Yeah. Um, was it was your experiences of working amongst scientists? Did this drive your, did you see there was a need for a different way of getting research out to the public? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So when I was studying biology and when I was in the lab mm-hmm. on a regular basis, I felt felt this very strange conflict within myself. I loved what I was learning. I loved the meta narratives mm-hmm. about life, how it ticks, how it evolved, mm-hmm. um, what threats it's facing, and what we need to do to galvanize support to to hold on to the biodiversity that is facing these enormous challenges. Right. But I was. Um, bored to death with the ways that it was being taught, you know, forced memorization. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the the worst graphic imagery of my life oh, yeah. Yeah. was, you know, given over through scientific lectures yep. that just take this fascinating information and make it impossible to decipher from what you're looking at and right. just dry 100%. and devoid of humanity and art and things like this. So yeah. I remember becoming... Um, very fixated on the idea that artists and scientists needed to work together mm-hmm. to tell better visual stories, to tell better narrative stories, to get that spark of imagination and inspiration working in people who otherwise don't believe that they are into capital S science because mm. we're still you know, brought up to believe that some people have a science and math brain and other people have a creative brain and that those are somehow different and that you can't be both. And all of this damaging, stereotypical um, kind of trope lane that we do in the minds of young people. Mm-hmm. I just, I remember feeling um, very aware that that was a fabrication yeah. when I was training to become a scientist and that we needed to to galvanize connections between people across disciplines so that that can change and so that artists can feel like they can become scientists and it's not a betrayal of their identity, for example. Yes. And um, so th- those were all starting to stir and, you know, I'd go in day after day to the lab and I would feel like it was a, it was an environment I didn't want to spend my life in mm-hmm. because it was so sterile and, and non-scientific. Social and and um, non creative, yeah, non creative, 
creative, exactly. Even though the reasons for why people were there are incredibly creative and fascinating. And then something happened, which was that I got introduced to David Attenborough's broadcasting. Yes. <laughs> so David, Aaron's hero. <laughs> oh yeah. One well, of we, we share a hero then. Yeah. He's, he's the best. He's the dude. I mean, our, I had a professor who would show us his his films mm-hmm. on Fridays in a, a botany class. And that was this very clear signal to me that I need to follow somehow in, in his footsteps, but do my own thing, but try to grow as a science storyteller mm-hmm. rather than as a scientist. And he was the, the first one to show me that that could be possible. You stay close to this material that fascinates you and invigorates you, but you get to escape all of these cultural problems that bog you down with it while also trying to prove this thing that you know to be true, which is that science is artistic and creative and full of stories and, and all the rest of it. In so, an engaging way that, that actually yeah. makes the difference and did you feel pulled between those two directions uh before that felt like a, a moment of like uh, a clarity where these two worlds come together i did feel as though going down the science route when just choosing my first degree for example that would be the thing that made my dad the most proud yes. and was like living up to um, the greatest open potential for me rather than going into a creative writing program or something that I was actually better at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had never been a good science student necessarily in, in high school. I was always better at things like English. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it felt like that BSc for some reason was important, mm-hmm. even though now I realize that that was a bunch of, you know, it, I was getting bogged down with with bad values essentially, but um, that set me on my path and I did feel conflicted because I didn't feel that it was my natural talent, so to speak, but I also, I don't know, I had a, I had a high school biology teacher who was really inspiring on my last year and uh, I kind of developed this belief that I could do it even though I had historically been bad at it through being taught by him. So I went for it, just thinking that this will be the more impressive thing on my CV and more impressive thing in my dad's eyes, right. I guess he could say. Yeah. And um, I I came close to switching my major a variety of times, but I, I stuck with it and I'm really glad that I did. But uh, yeah, it's those things that when you put these these little expectations in the minds of insecure young people. And they think that it actually means the world as to what major they choose. You know, I was, I was conflicted by all that stuff for a while. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Brett, I wish you could um, like speak to my like 17 year old self. Yes. Um, Oh yeah. I think there are a lot of people in this situation where it does just seem like a path you go down, especially in the UK where we don't have the major minor system. You just choose the thing and that's what you do. That's the path that you're on. And that's, you're, you're saying like my own story back to me as well. That oh, felt, really? Once you're wow. a scientist, you're stuck into it and like that's your thing and that has a kind of power to it. Right. Um, but then I would watch David Attenborough too and like be like, well, I, I, I see that there's a difference between what these lecturers are saying, these amazing things. Like, you know, the first time someone explains what's going on inside a cell to you and you're like, why isn't everyone talking about this yeah. all the time? It's crazy. There's like a universe in that cell. And yet you're just being told very dryly on this, on this um, presentation. Um, right. Yeah, so I, how do you like give younger people more of an option there? Like how, what, what, I, I feel like it's almost like an educational thing that you're almost stuck, that mm. you go down this path. Like, what would you do now? Do you do any like interventions with like younger people? Do you go speak at like, uh, 
So like yeah. high school students, you walk into a university and flip the tables. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Just set the place on fire. Yeah. No, um, I do. I mean, I give talks sometimes in high schools. Uh, I've, I've taught myself a variety of, of courses at the kind of masters and undergraduate level right. when people are still really forming their identities mm-hmm. and their, their trajectories for what they want to do with their interests and their careers. And I am very quick to point out these spaces of interdisciplinarity that we have more and more examples of that yes. are are inspiring and exciting and have some kind of heft behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would be pointing to residencies, for example, like Synthetic Aesthetics, which was this incredible collaboration between artists, designers, philosophers, and synthetic biologists wow. that happened a few years ago that produced uh, a variety of beautiful works for exhibition and uh, and a book and a variety of kind of scholarly essays reflecting on what happens when you bring these different disciplines together to show people that, you know, creative potentials are basically lacking any ceiling when you bring different types of knowledge traditions together. Mm -hmm. And there's more and more curiosity for this now in both the institutions and kind of private lab spaces and creative ateliers. And, you know, if you want to live in a, in a somewhat risky way as an artist or someone Mm -hmm. who doesn't have a traditional career path, there's so much for you to do because there's more and more of this canon being built on its own, Mm -hmm. more and more interest in what you might call practice-based research where, yeah, you're doing something academically, but you're not just writing about it in an academic tone. You're creating documentary films, you're, doing performance art, you're producing um, the creative work as a research methodology itself in order to come to new findings. And so there's there's a whole breadth of scholarship on that. I point people in those directions. I send people to, you know, biohacking spaces or bioart laboratories, places that I really came into my own confidence around interdisciplinary work through. Um, and I'm constantly just learning about new things because so many people are doing so much. So I try to keep a list and then share it, you know, when it's relevant, whatever lectures I'm doing. And I often find myself speaking to scientists who at the end of the lecture say, okay, I want to collaborate Mm, with an artist or with a writer. How do I do that? You know, how do I make those inroads? So it's about trying to foster those community connections. And that's refreshing to hear that the, on both sides, these two communities are indeed coming together. You know, there's nothing worse than a filmmaker with nothing to say and a way to say it. And, uh, and, and, you know, there's a, a scientist that has lots to say but no way to say it. Brit's own practice-based research included a project called Orata that centred on synthetic biology where scientists, regulators and bioethicists all recorded audio diaries of their thoughts on the subject. This was turned into an interactive website with a design studio. Let's use that as an excuse to talk synthetic biology for a minute. Living cells are their own flat-pack furniture They have inbuilt manuals that enable them to function and duplicate. Have you ever just stopped and wondered at how a sperm and egg has all the information inside to build an embryo, create brains, guts, eyes, hands? It's a process of genes being switched on and off in the right place at the right time. And it's talked about in the language of computers. Cells are programmed by their code, which is DNA. Scientists have spent decades breaking down these genetic commands to a point where they can now, out of a soup of proteins and genetic material, input the programs themselves. Earlier this year, researchers built, yes, built, 
a synthetic E. coli genome from scratch, even taking the liberty of making the genome more slimline by editing out certain regions and implanted it in viable cells that lived and reproduced, all running off this human-engineered genome. This all means that cells can be reprogrammed or simply just designed to perform certain tasks. It's understanding nature in order to engineer nature ourselves. There are so many potential uses of synthetically created organisms, such as algae biofuels, but there's obviously interest from the biohackers and transhumanists we've discussed previously. And of course, all the warning signs from science fiction about what happens when humans turn creators. One field excited by synthetic biology is de-extinction. So what is that exactly? Yeah, so de-extinction is first and foremost a scientific movement Mm -hmm. where researchers are trying to recreate close versions of extinct species Mm -hmm. because they see it as some kind of tool for the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. It comes in many forms. There's different technologies that can be used, whether it's gene editing using something like CRISPR-Cas9 or cloning or artificial selection techniques Mm -hmm. that are called called backbreeding. It's not about creating the exact replica of an extinct species because extinction is still real. You know, when the woolly mammoth died out, it died out forever. Mm -hmm. But instead, what we can do is create these proxy animals Mm -hmm. in their image, essentially. So by using the genes that we salvage from fossilized remains or well-preserved elements of these animals, and then we can sequence their DNA and get um, enough of it that we can read and understand what some of those functional bits of the genetic script meant for those extinct species, then we can kind of synthesize those genes in new animals, or we can breed those traits into new animals that will then ideally, in the eyes of these scientists, allow these new animals to look and act and therefore carry out the ecological role of the extinct species. Would you see a, uh, maybe a business opportunity for someone to bring extinct animals back and then create, say, a theme park out of them, um, put them on an island, give them some jeeps? I don't know. It <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> it's, it's definitely an idea that's been floated many times. I mean, the people who are at the forefront of these projects and who are couching de-extinction as a conservation tool, which, by the way, I don't think we should just take for granted. Mm-hmm. Even that can be scrutinized a lot. Right. But the people who are really working on this as a conservation tool do not have those intentions. And they condemn those ideas. And they don't want to be compared to Jurassic Park. Right, because, yeah. you know, Jurassic Park was kind of a secretive operation of a bunch of um, highly knowledgeable, technologically advanced genetic engineers doing this dinosaur resurrection work without the okay of the general public. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to capitalize off of it. They're trying to make money with this theme park. And so these scientists in real life de-extinction are saying, hey, there's no money to be made here. No one makes (laughs) money in conservation. And that's not what we're about. We're just trying to kind of reap... um, something good in these holes in nature that we've that we've ripped open with our activities by constituting new animals that act like the extinct species that used to hold those ecosystems together right. We're in a more to productive those way holes that we've, we've ripped exactly and um and so yeah there 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 are real life um stories though of people not having those conservation intentions and wanting to see the real life Jurassic Park come to life. Yes. So there's actually um there's a guy at McMaster University named Hendrik Poinar and if there's anything like a de-extinction dynasty he's the closest that 
we could say there is to one because he's the son of George Poinar Jr., mm-hmm. who is the um, uh, ancient DNA expert that inspired Michael Crichton to write Jurassic Park no with some kidding. of his, his own findings. I love that yeah, bit in the when, book when <laughs> his son would recount that, like, oh. Dad kind of wishes he'd have just done that idea himself. He'd seen the potential in the film rather than telling exactly. Michael Crichton. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. He was on. the first to kind of presume that the engorged bellies of the amber-encased bugs that he had from um, different historical periods when dinosaurs, like the duckbill dinosaur, had been alive, that those... Um, engorged bellies could be filled with blood that the insect had sucked from a dinosaur. And then, of course, in those blood cells, there could be dinosaur DNA. So he wrote this up in a paper that Michael Crichton got a hold of, and it inspired him to then suss out the plot for how this might work in dinosaur de-extinction for for his book. And um, uh, at the time, Hendrik Poinar was studying and um, also going into becoming a paleobiologist himself, like his dad. But he got to be eventually on the sets of the Jurassic Park films, mm-hmm. consulting on what their DNA sequencers should look like, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all this all this was happening around him as the the books developed into films, and he was growing up as a young scientist. And his dad was the original scientific mind that kind of kicked off this this plot. It's all kind of amazing, but now he runs an ancient DNA lab at McMaster University in Hamilton, and um, he's often looked to as one of the experts on woolly mammoth de-extinction because he's one of the first to create a robust um, genetic sequence of the full genome of, of woolly mammoths. Mm-hmm. And so he was taken out to lunch one day by a businessman um, who kind of invited him out for a fancy affair over a $7,000 bottle of wine. Oh, classic story. This is really <laughs> painting the scene. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, over that lunch, he was offered the chance to join him on a mission to recreate the woolly mammoth and populate a theme park with these creatures that are, you know, kind of woolly mammoth elephant hybrids, probably somewhere north of Toronto, mm-hmm. and that they could... Uh, enter a really formidable business relationship with each other if he would leave his tenure track position at McMaster. And, you know, he said, thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. He's really interested in the science of how these creatures lived and why they died out by studying their DNA more so than in resurrecting them. But it just proves the point that there are people with other kind of far less than ecological and conservation-based motives thinking about what de-extinction could mm-hmm. put out into the world. Yeah, for sure. Would you go yeah. to that theme park in Northern Ontario? Would you go see them? Oh, man. Or would you be against so, it and, and encourage people not to go? I mean, I would I would be against it. We should not be creating these experimental necrofauna, as I might call them. Mm-hmm. or For spectacle. Um, you know, yeah, we, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of animal suffering that would be wrapped up in these experiments yes. to finally get them working. A lot of animal death along the way. Um, a lot of co-opting of animals to be surrogates, especially if we were to use elephants as surrogate mothers to these kind of highly genetically Proxies. modified embryos yeah. that are growing inside of um, elephant wombs 
elephants are endangered themselves. They should be freed up to make more elephants, yes. not right, right. forced to make these creatures that are then really only there to satisfy human curiosity. And we go pay to see them on a Sunday behind bars, right. you know? So I think that that's absolutely the, the worst case scenario for de-extinction should it come to that. But critics point out that, you know, just because you have some in a zoo, it doesn't mean that you don't have herds then roaming in the wild and carrying out the ecosystem services you might want them to. Mm. Because in many cases, you know, zoos can be kind of an intermediary step in releasing lab-made animals to the wild. And also they educate the public about why we need to create a new relationship to thinking about this kind of post-natural wildlife. Right, and then that um, helps the funding can, and, and the, the And it the helps the funding, yeah. exactly. So it's not such a black and white thing. Yeah, you like, I think you like that phrase, post-natural wildlife. Yes. That sounds right up your alley. Yeah, that, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> that's a new one for my, uh, for my uh, repertoire. This whole de-extinction idea has been a collection of disparate parts since the days of Dolly the Sheep, but one nonprofit is seeking to change that. Revive and Restore is a US-based nonprofit seeking to set the standards for de-extinction protocols. It flies its banner as a positive force for conservation first and foremost. It has many marketable phrases spread throughout its website, such as resilience through genetics and insists their methods of genetic rescue should complement traditional forms of conservation, like the protection of habitat and the control of invasive species. Revive and Restore bring together the various labs working on de-extinction across the globe, and have begun funding new research. They recently received three million US dollars from private biotech company ProMega. They've already awarded a grant to research how gene editing might save corals in the Great Barrier Reef from bleaching due to environmental impacts. This answers one of the common criticisms of de-extinction, that money is being taken away from current conservation projects. They found their own sources of finance. In fact, one of their founding donors is a certain George R.R. R. Martin, who hopefully isn't just in it for new source material. Ben Novak, lead scientist at Revive and Restore, wrote a paper last year that goes deep into the language of de-extinction, taking aim at the use of the phrase proxy animals. Instead, he argues that a species shouldn't be considered extinct if it exists as cryopreserved fertilised cells. He calls these evolutionarily torpid species, a phrase you probably won't be whipping out over beers. But it raises an interesting point about the language of science communication. There's a reason why Brit uses the word necrofauna in the title, a creepier word than de-extinction, which sounds future-facing and full of promise. The words scientists choose to describe their aims will impact how the public feel about their work. To be fair, I was able to read Ben Novak's paper for free on the internet, all a part of Revive and Restore's aim to be transparent, something that happens all too rarely in the world of academia. Anyway, everyone's excited about CRISPR, right? I was relishing putting together a summary of CRISPR for this podcast myself. But when you have an award-winning science communicator around, it's best just to let them explain things for you. So, Britt, what what's the deal with CRISPR for for the listeners uh, that that uh, may not be familiar with it? Yeah, so CRISPR is a naturally occurring 
defense system of bacteria and these other small things called archaea, <laughs> other primitive life form. And it's basically part of their immune system. It allows them to identify when they're being attacked by viruses and then um, chop up the viral DNA and store it in its own genome so that it can remember who the perpetrator was should that perpetrator ever come back at some future point and try and attack it again. It kind of stores these mug shots of the attacker's DNA in its own DNA and then can say, okay, bring out the weapons, I'm going to chop you up again, and that way it protects itself. So this was a, a kind of curious thing that researchers were starting to un unravel the truths of over the last couple of decades, um, but it was in 2012 when researchers discovered how to hijack this immune system and make it then do genetic engineering on demand in any kind of organism, not just those that it naturally occurs in, but it works in plants and humans and all kinds of animals. And so essentially it's, it's programmable molecular scissors that you can direct to any point in an organism's genome as precise as a specific letter of DNA in that genome and say, cut here. Right. And you can also program it to insert new DNA at a certain site where the cut has been made in order to then patch it up um, and make it, you know, continue to function in a healthy way. It needs to be patched, but you can trick the cell into patching it with novel DNA that you've synthesized in the lab and, and put into the cell. And then the CRISPR um, machinery will, will put it there for you. So it's basically an in and out gene tailoring machine. It's or the final cut um, of gene editing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's this handy metaphor that often gets used, which is that it's it's kind of like a Swiss army knife right. because it's got the magnifying glass that allows you to scan the genome for the right place to cut. And then once you find it, you whip at the scissors. Of course, you, you cut with the scissor blades and then a pencil to write in the new genetic code where you where you want it. Even your way of uh, giving an analogy for what that very complicated uh, engineering feat is, is, is so handy for a creative person like me to follow along and really understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. Thank you for that. And do, what, what do you think, you may know the people that, um, that uh, discovered this, but it, what was happening in that laboratory when it, they had that aha moment? Do you think it was like, yes, we're going to go tell the world or, oh shit, this is possible, what are we going to do now? I do have to give Jennifer Doudna credit. Um, she's She's, you know, largely uh, spoken of as being the the original kind of discoverer um, of, of using CRISPR as a gene editing tool. However, she's very deliberate about pointing out how it's it's an incredibly powerful dual use technology. We cannot race ahead with these experiments that apply it. Um, she's recommended moratoria with different types of CRISPR tools, and it really speaks out loudly against things like the Chinese experiment that happened in late 2018 with the twin girls that were um, the first humans to be born that had been uh, CRISPRed as as embryos. And um, and so I think there is kind of a reflective spirit in the culture of of those scientists. Yeah, good. Crispered as a verb is great. Crispered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard it put that way. In the future, you'll get to kindergarten. And Have you been crispered? Were you crispered or yeah. were you <laughs> Really, like, this podcast is more about, like, just because we can, should we, you know, all those kinds right. of questions and stuff. And I love yeah. the, um, 
And, the sorry of, to interrupt, Aaron, no, but like how, how science fiction often breeds reality. That's a that's a theme that comes up uh, with many of our guests, uh, just to throw that in. And then the, that classic science fiction is because we can, should we? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you, you talk a lot about... It's a big, juicy question. Yeah, and you talk about Frankenstein as well in the book and like uh, how he created that monster and then kind of left it be and like the consequences of that and what that means for us and the way we perceive these things. And I love... Um, you uh, mention a philosopher, I think Thomas Van Dorn, who talks about how really we should be like mourning. <laughs> Maybe it's more important to mourn what we've been doing rather than like mm-hmm. always look for the solution to something. Right? It's yeah. like, well, we fucked it up. Let's like let's create something new. But like, there might actually be a process to be understood there in terms of what we've right. done as people. Yeah, yeah, I love I love his work. I think it's incredibly important to this conversation because, you know, Thomas Van Doren, who's a philosopher of extinction, mm-hmm. um, points out that mourning allows us an opportunity to relearn the world. Right. It's, it's a painful process of grieving, mourning that you mm-hmm. go through in order to understand that the world is no longer what it was and you have to adapt to the world that you will now inhabit mm-hmm. um, without that precious thing that your life was tied up with. And through that comes an, a knowledge for a, a new way of of working and thinking and being ethically in the world mm-hmm. that regards the importance of whatever might next be at stake, for example. Yeah. So you can change your practices. You can actually learn from the mistakes that we've had. And if we just rush over that speed bump, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't want to stop there um, and contemplate and like slowly go over it. Yeah. Then what might what opportunities are we just completely throwing away to become better, to become more ethical, more moral, more deeply intertwined with other forms of life? Mm-hmm. Um, especially when the whole world is like at this crazy pace, just spiraling out of control mm-hmm. on an ecological level. Yeah. And we're losing more and more species. Yeah, and in absolutely. that niche industry that, that you're in, uh, if, if, you know, if I can call it a niche industry, it, it's, uh, uh, I wonder if there's a, is there a short list of ethics that, you know, can be printed out on a poster and put up in, in these laboratories to say, Hey, uh, these are the three things to never forget. Like, like Asimov has their, the, the rules of robotics, even though they're criticized, but it's like, you know, if, mm. if, if, uh, if we follow these rules, we'll have a human centric singularity. Is there, a, is there a, a list of ethics or something that someone's distilled, uh, for the industry at this point? There are guidelines that the International Union for the Conservation of Nature has written, which are awesome. not so much framed as ethical guidelines, as practical guidelines, but they are steered by a moral clarity underneath those practicalities because basically they say whether we like it or not, the extinction's coming down the pipe and we're going to get some of these curious creatures in our backyards. Mm-hmm. And um, we we need to do that with the most clear uh, oversight using knowledge that we have from conservation of endangered species and the ways that we translocate, you know, we move species around right. the world when they've gone locally extinct and we we reintroduce them sometimes. And it's actually a really complicated affair mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of things that could go wrong in that process. So it's not all that unlike moving lab-made animals into an environment where, sure, originally there was a version of them yes. that was there and went extinct, but maybe it's been thousands of years. What can we do? And so they came up with these guidelines that do have a hierarchy of importance, such as, you know, one, for this candidate species you're thinking of de-extincting, is there any available habitat? You know, because right. are you going to go to all this trouble to just come up with 
an animal that can only live in captivity. It's going to be homeless has, otherwise. Yeah. It's going to be homeless. You know, there's no food oh. available for it. There's no like, it, like crucial dynamics between the flora and fauna and um, microbes that it needs to be able to thrive. Do we even have the information and the data to know what it needs? And that animal um, would be like, there, just leave me alone. I was Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. like, let me lay and rest yeah. in peace and learn, you know, distance. exactly. Reflect on the fact that you killed me and don't do yeah, it again. Exactly. That kind of thing. Um, <laughs> And, you know, crucial questions like, are there any humans that live in the area that might want to benefit from these animals being around in a way that could hurt them? You know, are they going to harvest them for different parts of their bodies wow. or try to make money off of them by putting them in a theme park or make them go extinct again? Or is there a pathogen in the environment that could threaten it like a chytrid fungus that wipes out all sorts of amphibians and you're trying to recreate the gastric brooding frog. The list goes on and on. So they do, I would say that they are ethical because they have the the viability and the well-being of the recreated species at heart. Um, but yeah, there could still be some more basic ethical principles that we could follow, I think, in these, in these fields of kind of like post-natural manufacturing, whatever you want to call it, which is it starts for me with humans are not the center of life. Mm -hmm. You know, we yeah. need to decenter the human in the matrix of, of ecology in order to understand that we, we shouldn't go meddling and intervening just for our own interests. Mm -hmm. And because it becomes incredibly complicated and messy very quickly when we do that. So for any aspiring science fiction writers listening, Britt just rhymed off maybe six different books that you could, uh, <laughs> uh, you could write. Yeah. Make sure you give her co-authorship credit when you, when you do. There's a lot uh, of uh, material there. There's yeah. a lot of material, especially the, the, the ethics and the, the dilemmas that, that come from this. Well, yeah, and the, mm. the, there's a whole bit of the book tied up in what the legal ramifications would be and how that would differ from country to country and how you define these things, uh, whether it's yeah. you know, precedent law or whatever. And then, well, China's going to do this thing anyway, so like, how are we going to respond? Um, right. It's just so, so myriad. And um, it reminded me, well, so there's a bit in the book as well where you mentioned that when sort of gene editing tools first became a thing, there was a moratorium on them. Everyone was like, let's hang on a minute. And let's figure out maybe what we're doing here and let's have a think about what's happening before we mm -hmm. proceed. Um, and that makes me think now about what we're doing with AI and you know, artificial intelligence and super intelligence and um, you know, fears of the singularity and stuff. And it's just, do you, yes. do you think that we could benefit more from maybe everyone saying, hang on? Like a nice slowdown. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's have a chat yeah. for a while. Or, is it, or yeah. is it risky to slow down at this point because we may need these technologies to uh, repair the holes that we've ripped in the fabric of, of our environment? Yeah, yeah, these are pressing and troubling, fascinating Which one questions. is it, Brit? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us. I, um, I really think, in an overarching way, as a culture of scientific technological creatures, we need to slow the hell down. Yes. <laughs> you know, we need to create incentives and values in the way that we do this work that allow for reflection and pause and consideration of non-scientific, non-technological priorities as we're going about making these experiments and, and turning them into applications. Um, we have gotten ourselves in this bind where speed means progress, speed means success, mm -hmm. speed means international competition, mm -hmm. and it's completely out of control <laughs> to the point that we're so paranoid that we think we can't have a moratorium and we can't slow down, that there will be an arms race elsewhere, and it's this constant um, 
quest for domination and therefore we can't afford to slow down. But as we speed up increasingly because our technologies get faster and our experience with hurting them does too, we create these mega engineering projects that we don't understand the full ramifications of. And we've seen this so many times in the past. We understand why technology is dual use. We understand why it can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we were to, to really evolve into technologically mature humans, we would be able to demonstrate restraint where it's due, you know, and this is a big challenge right now for us. And I'm not sure that I trust us to be able to have that maturity mm -hmm. at this point. I haven't seen it. And I think there's all sorts of other worldviews we need to bring to the decision-making table around how far we go with these developments, like indigenous worldviews, you know, like feminist worldviews, mm -hmm. like um, worldviews that value interconnectedness and, um, and patience and, and, and patience. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And all sorts of things we'd really benefit from making space and time for, but the geopolitical matrix we're in is it just, people are panicking and anxious that they're going to lose out. So it's faster mm -hmm. and it's capitalism and it's all these things. So it's, it's a really fascinating problem, but yes, I mean, I really like philosophers like Bruno Latour and Isabel Stengers and Donna Haraway, who all talk about these techno-scientific cultures we're in and point to different ways that, you know, things could be otherwise. Right, yes. And um, they're, they're really generative for kind of thinking with these problems through just any of those people I just mentioned. Also, another woman named Anna Singh, mm -hmm. T-S-I-N-G. Um, because what, as she points out, uh, we've created from from all this like post-industrial speed um, a situation where when we think about how to thrive in the future with technology, we we have to accept that we just have to, it's a project of learning how to live in ruins. Wow. Like that's wow. what we're creating and wow, passing on. Quote. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't have to be that way. Yeah. But we didn't know any better. And that seems to be the story so much of humans. It's like um it's it's mm. interesting the part like almost like a point like backwards and forwards when you think about de-extincting species well you can talk about well is the environment going to be the same as they they uh, lived in you can look back and think about it whereas when we're looking forward to what we're doing well this is a real-time experiment right when you look at what you know big social media companies are doing with data and how we just had to like react to that we couldn't do it before because it just happened and then we had to be like whoa this is our data what can we do about that now it just, it seems so hard to, like, how are we ever going to mature and get a handle on it when it does keep moving? Yeah. If it's real time, there's no, there's no reflection. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, I've, AI is a very fascinating one with the speed question. <laughs> <laughs> um, realistically, I don't have any expectation that this stuff will slow down, but, you know, I, I know people who work inside formidable AI companies like Google DeepMind and uh, are terrified about the speed at which their daily work is ramping up, but they don't have a choice in slowing down because it's part it. of a much bigger... Right. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, speed is this never-ending question with all of these technologies, but I don't... I don't know. Do we really need these... It's an open question. I, I'm not going to criticize it all the way through. I mean, maybe these technologies will be part of the solution as well. Um, 
we're going to have to see. Yeah. That's the only hope, really. If if it's going to, if it's inevitable, we can't stop, we can't slow down on aggregate. Then that's really the only hope that we have is to use these technologies. You know, it's it's fire can burn your house down or it can keep you warm, and we got to we got to take the keep you warm side. Right. Yeah. Right. And we don't really know what humans are capable of. There's a lot of uncertainty. That's There's a true. lot of things that haven't been tried. So, yeah, we have to stay open to being surprised. Speaking of rapid progress, you might have read about Google's recent claim of quantum supremacy. They tested their newly built quantum computer with a question that would take any regular old boring supercomputer 10,000 years to solve. And it figured it out in 90 seconds. Yes, we're using quantum mechanics to build computers now. You might remember OpenAI that I mentioned on a previous episode. A few months back, they built a fake news generating algorithm that was so good, they decided not to release the code for it. But with governments so far behind on figuring out a way to regulate any technological progress, it places the emphasis on the individuals who are creating these innovations. The scientists. Francis Crick the co-discoverer of the DNA helix, called his memoir, What Mad Pursuit, highlighting the sometimes overwhelming need scientists feel to find the answers and solutions to questions society isn't even necessarily asking them to solve, even though their research can have profound effects. This occasionally leads some scientists to be less than open to other points of view. I asked Britt about the tunnel vision that can affect not just research, but the way scientists relate to the public impact of their work. Yes, um, I do see that because at certain points along the way, I've seen their data uh, change completely. And they find a way to construe those findings, which are now in complete contradiction with what their former findings were, still Amazing. support their mission. That's right. science. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. And it's very, um, it just lays it all on the table. It's very, tran- it's a transparent moment of seeing, <laughs> you know, the fact that these are humans right. with with dreams yes. yeah. and they're biased yes. and they want to achieve something and they're driven. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> but what they, you know, their former argument um, I, for why this was a good idea no longer applies in this case, and it's actually antithetical to it, and yet they're finding a way to construe the story so it supports what they're doing. So that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think scientists have become you know, sophisticatedly trained to know how to pay respect to public engagement, ethical, social, legal implications, kinds of work with social scientists and other collaborators who might come into their lab. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're genuinely often interested and open-minded about what that might create, but they, um, yeah, it's, it's still largely a practice of getting them on the grant. You know, Mm -hmm. I've been that person on other, I'm I'm that person on someone's grant right now. Um, Mm -hmm. so, (laughs) you know, and, and it's not that they're, um, not interested and not curious or or think that the social scientists there have nothing to offer. It's just that there's only so many hours in a day and yeah. they can only publish on certain types of information and, and findings that they create. And um, it's really hard for them to know how they're going to benefit from these other perspectives often in their work that will reward them yeah. on their path to being a scientist. So there's still some structural issues that make these collaborations um, shallow mm-hmm. Often, um, and there's a really rife and active debate in kind of like social sciences and anthropology of science and 
these spaces where people are trying to figure out how to have more meaningful collaborations, but I think we're still a bit stuck. Yeah. And how do you feel uh, art or storytelling, just to um, harken back to, to you as a person who rides that line between the arts and the science sciences, how do you feel uh, art or storytelling or creativity could play a role in, in solving some of these problems or, or that, that communication factor? I think it's... Um, it's a similar argument as to why diversity is important. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get different worldviews, different specialties, different experiences weighing in on a problem, you all of a sudden see it from a completely new perspective that you are incapable on your own of imagining right. because your experience on this planet is just so different from that one. Yes. And um, we have built-in blindnesses uh, and we only get exposed through going through something. And so all of a sudden to have someone who's coming um, with tools from philosophy or art or design or different kind of critical thinking skills than you've ever been taught, they're going to take your object of study and turn it on its side. And all of a sudden it's reflecting all these new lights that you never saw before. And that's incredibly valuable because it saves us from, yeah, digging a hole with the, with limited questions about where this research can really go and the good it can really do. And for whom it's always, you know, the power wrapped up in these initiatives is, um, what does this mean for whom? And who who's the one asking questions and who's being left out implicitly because of the situated nature of that that person who's in control? Right. Mm-hmm. So by diversifying that, I think you get much richer outcomes. Yeah. Um there's a there's a wonderful bit in the book where you just speak to a historian about like beavers in Sweden and they're like, Well, yeah, that's <laughs> like a big part of like Swedish Swedish national identity is like the idea of having these beavers out in the wilderness. So like Right. Maybe that has a difference in terms of how you reintroduce a species or not. But were scientists asking any historians? Maybe not. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that could be like a big part of how you actually go about any kind of conservation, let alone just de-extinction. And that really makes right. me think about things like autonomy um, or t- autonomous vehicles and stuff. And like, are we speaking to like sociologists and behavioral ecologists about how people are going to respond to driverless cars because we're like, they're coming, they're happening. But you go to anywhere outside the big cities in Canada, you think anyone's going to give up driving their vehicle? Mm, nope. No. <laughs> no chance. Yeah, yeah, not anytime soon. Yeah, so like, I don't, like who, is it just the people in big cities that are making these decisions? Like they're not even going out and seeing like how the rest of the world works. Right. It's these really small sample sizes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's the same. I do see the parallels with scientists about how like, well, this is my view. This is how it works. You should like, I'm right because I've done the research, but you've only researched what you can access, I guess. Right. I'm a big fan of uh, uh, IDEO because they are, you know, they, 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 they are in this uh, creative. What is IDEO? IDEO is an industrial uh, design company. They, they, I think they designed like the the mouse originally oh, okay. uh, for Apple or right, right, one right. of their founders did. Um, but they, uh, you know, they come from that creative uh, design side. But then they have on their team they have uh, scientists and philosophers and like I don't know, probably a priest somewhere in there too. <laughs> but but they have such a diverse team uh, brainstorming solutions. And even ten years ago, I saw a little mini doc on them, and it was just so inspiring to see a creative company b- draw from the scientists and. And philosophy, and I, I hope that you know it's kind of weird to think that a scientific team will bring on a creative person or an artist or somebody like that just to mess with their perspective. But um, there's so much value in that. Ho- hopefully, there are there are roles for creative people on that side uh, coming yeah. coming up. 
Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I see things like uh, your pal uh, George Church's um, stuff at um, the Wiss Institute at Harvard. Mm-hmm. They, they do all these um, great biologically inspired uh, feats of engineering, like robots and stuff that are based on lots of soft robotics, based on the natural world and stuff as well. So it does seem like maybe rather than trying to dictate like what the best thing is, it's actually, well, nature figured this out. Why don't we look a bit more at what yes. nature did? Yeah. Yes. From some of our answers. Um, yes. Yeah. So, uh, Britt, we often ask if someone's hopeful or fearful about the future, and we've covered a lot of, you know, it's, mm. this has been a, a, a great podcast, but we we dug into some fears uh, around ethics and the it, just because we should, we we can, should we? Um, but could you paint a picture of the the hopeful future that that you're seeing um, in in uh, uh, the study of necrofauna? Hmm. Well. Within the study of necrofauna, I think the biggest hope is that these synthetic biology tools are getting sharpened in new ways and they can be applied to all the other species that are currently facing um, critical endangerment Mm -hmm. and that will increasingly face critical endangerment. I mean, it was only last month that that UN-backed IBPES report said that, you know, humans are going to force up to a million species to extinction, many within decades. Mm -hmm. So the the candidate list is going to continue to be enormous as to who out there in the wild needs some kind of a genetic boost or to be genetically altered in some way so that they are um, resistant to a pathogen or a virus. uh, And we have the tools that we're learning how to develop because of the splash and sensation of de-extinction. You know, um, the fact that Revive and Restore, the de-extinction kind of cheerleading organization that really um, has been the main advocate for the movement, gathering funds and researchers and creating a whole rhetoric around what it means for the future. They're also investing in what they call genetic rescue, um, which is not just focusing on these care charismatic, iconic, um, extinct species that we would possibly love to look in the eye again, but at much more banal forms of conservation for species that are having a tough time right now. And so all of a sudden, um, these game-changing sounding tools just become yet one more scalpel in the toolbox Mm -hmm. that we can use in a conservation Mission. Right, it's a preservation so, tool versus a, a de-extinction tool. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and it becomes that line can become blurred very quickly sure. uh, because you know when you're down to just one individual of a species which is functionally extinct in the wild. Um, we could talk about the northern white rhino. There's only two females left living in a conservancy in Kenya. I mean, is it? when we use advanced um, stem cell engineering and cloning and these methods that people are working on to try and save them. Um, and is this, is this not de-extinction even when there's two individuals left, they're, they're pretty much extinct. Right. They're extinct on their own. They're extinct in the wild. So is it somehow ethically um, more correct to save them and not call it de-extinction and just call it genetic rescue because there's still two around as compared with doing the exact same work the day after the last one dies. Right. You know, that becomes a, a kind of murky transition and I don't think that we have to assign moral hierarchy to it. But um, the fact is just that we're getting better at using these tools and we're developing a new imagination in our own culture about what it means to do genetic engineering and hopefully we're distancing ourselves from this Frankenstein complex where it just means that 
they're inherently going to be monstrous and it's going to be abused and corporations like Monsanto are going to screw it up for vulnerable people right. and yeah. the rest of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the, the people working on these de-extinction products, even if like bringing back, um, say the passenger pigeon was like a big carrot being dangled at the very forefront of it. Like they have really like brought the cost of these technologies down. They've done so much research into how efficient things like CRISPR, Cas9 can be. And uh, yeah, those things are, what are the other kind of things that those are going to lead to, right? Like, uh, you know, medicine, um, yeah. humans, like disease prevention. Yeah, that's a fine line too. As soon as it starts to, it, we, we, we engineer animals, then it goes to humans. Yeah. Absolutely. It, yeah, definitely. And Britt, what's, uh, what's next for you? What, uh, another book? You Volume know, like, two, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am working on another book right now. Um, I just finished up a residency at TED, which got me into the headspace of of creating this this new project. And um, I've basically been reporting on the psychological impacts of living in a warming world. It's become mm. my new obsession wow. as of late. Cool. It's it started with just noticing this chatter amongst millennials where people were saying that they didn't want to have kids because of climate change. It's trying to unpack what that meant um, as well as, you know, facing my own feelings about this. And it, it very quickly became much more complex and nuanced than just people fretting about whether or not they want to have kids in age, the age of global warming. Um, and I uh, could see that there was a lot of very rich information and research being um, created in psychiatric circles and psychological circles about uh, how climate change takes a toll on our innermost selves. And so when we talk about climate change, often it's, we're still talking about it um, when it's in a health context as public health, as disease spread, for example, but we're not um, totally up to date with what there is to be said about the psychological impacts of living in these kind of existentially threatening times. So in that sense, I'm connecting this whole study I've been doing about reproductive hesitancy to just it being an urgent indicator of how hard pressed people are feeling in order to tell a bigger story about, yeah, the psychology of climate change and um, yeah. how that breaks down differently for different communities, different people. Wow. I'm adding that to my wish list. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, it's guess, very early I days. I think we'll have to do a follow-up episode once you've uh, yeah, finished up uh, seeing into all that data and once you've published it. Oh, thank you. About all that. The anxiety that we're kind of all feeling as individuals, as a society. Yeah. Because of what's yeah. going on right now. But, um, totally. Yeah. I mean, everything that you do seems to be at least like starting a conversation about it, engaging people. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, and thank you. Yeah, I hope I hope that you inspire more people to also take that approach, the cross field approach, and just talking to each other. You know, I agree. And and just uh, just to say, Britt, you're so inspiring in in the way that you've combined the the arts and the sciences, and you're living proof that 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 these two worlds should come together and to make a difference. Um, you're you're a fantastic author and storyteller, and and uh, it's been awesome to have you on our show. Yes, thank you. Oh my gosh, wow, thank you. I'll <laughs> play that back if I ever need to pick me up. That's so kind. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. It, it's, true. Um, it's been really good to chat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks well, thanks for, for coming on.
Yeah. Oh, total see, pleasure. See you for the next book, yeah, and we'll have your dad too. on in the meantime. <laughs> I'll let him know. He'll be thrilled. Thanks, Britt. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Britt Ray for joining us. There's so much more to Britt's book than what we were able to discuss in the podcast. So go read it, Rise of the Necrofauna, and watch Britt's talks on YouTube or at BrittRay.com. Now we want to know what you think. There's a lot to weigh in on here. Would you like to look a woolly mammoth in the eye? Is de-extinction the answer to our ecological crises? Should all scientific research be accessible to the public? I'll answer that one right now. Yes. Yes, it should. Let us know. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Machines Podcast. You can visit us at machinespodcast.com or send us an email at machinespodcast at gmail.com. This episode was recorded and crispered by David Angel at his studio, Giant Sound Toronto. And that's why it sounds so good. All the evidence suggests David was cloned at some point. There's no way one person has had as many jobs as him. He was even once head chef at the keg. How was that, Dave? I ate a lot of free prime rib, and it was pretty greasy. Mm. We'll be back next week discussing probably the most employable job of the future, the life of a developer. Are you worried that your job will be automated so you're considering learning to code? Find out what it's like next week. Thank you for listening to the Creative Machines podcast.